good if you had your Bibles open, please, to uh, Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> Pardon me. On January the 7th, 1855, the minister of the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark opened his morning sermon as follows. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's people is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God who calls him his father, whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is down, drowned in its infinity. Other, subjects, other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and we go on our way with the thought, behold I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but yesterday and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around the narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continuing investigation of the subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject eminently is consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And to that subject I invite you this morning. <clears throat> now those words were spoken by C.H. Spurgeon uh, over a century ago. Incredibly, at the time he said there was only 21 years of age. But I think his words were as true then as they are now. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6. Noah certainly occupies a prominent place. But God is the main character. And this morning I'd like to, for us to consider the character of God. 
as we see it here revealed to us in Genesis chapter 6. Now, as I mentioned last week, Pastor Brendan took us through the first eight verses and we appreciate the good work that he did there. But our, our particular focus this morning is going to be mostly on the rest of the chapter. Hopefully you've got your outline sheet there, which uh, you can see there's uh, three major headings, a couple of subheadings uh, as we proceed. <clears throat> but firstly, let's consider God's purpose and perception. Firstly, God's purpose, that is what he determined. If you look in verse 6, there are two words there together which says that God made man. <clears throat> verse 7, it says that man who God has created, the word created is there. Also in the end of verse 7, it says that God made all creatures. So we have it's referred to three times in two verses. God made man, he created him, he made... These are familiar words to us. We've heard them before in our series in Genesis. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God made the heavens and the earth, when God created everything, the word made is mentioned 11 times. The word created is mentioned seven times. As we read Psalm 19... That psalm tells us why God created everything, why God made everything. God created everything for his glory, for it declares the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The things that God created declare his glory. It shows his handiwork. Romans 1.20 adds to this, says there that the invisible things about God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Through the creation of the world, through everything that God has created, we can see things about God. We can see God's glory, even his eternal power and Godhead. The creation reveals God's glory to us. And specifically, man is the pinnacle of God's creation. And man alone was made in the image and the likeness of God. And creating man thus, God said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish, replenish the earth. Fill the earth. Fill the earth with people who reflect the character of God. God's purpose was clear. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God's purpose is clear. And in Genesis chapter 6, God's perception is accurate. God looked upon the earth that he had made that he had created, verse 5, Genesis 6, verse 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now, before we consider what God saw, we should note that the scripture teaches us that God saw. There was presumably a perception in the days of Noah that God was not at all interested in his creation. God was totally divorced from his creation, not intimately connected with it at all, wasn't interested in man's lifestyle. And therefore, God and whatever he thinks should not be taken seriously. But nothing could be further from the truth. Notice what God discerned. What God discerned, verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. God saw outward wickedness in the earth. Yet it wasn't just outward wickedness in the earth. 
the laser beam of the Lord's eyes discerned that every imagination and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Evil imaginations in the heart. Now it's one thing to note a person's actions, but it is an entirely different thing to accurately identify motive. The courts of our lands are sometimes required to discern the intents of a person's heart and even a referee in a ball game sometimes is trying to discern, to, dis to determine whether an action was intentional or whether it was merely accidental. This is tricky territory to everyone but God. But he discerns things rightly. One day Jesus was in a synagogue. There was a man with a withered hand there. So too with the Pharisees, watching to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath day. It says Jesus looked upon them in anger, being grieved with the hardness of their hearts, with x-ray vision. Jesus could see right into their hearts. Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1. As the he who has eyes as a flame of fire sees all the outer wickedness. And discerns, discerns every motive, every Im evil imagination. His vision of seen things and unseen things is 2020 at all times. It's a sobering reality. Verse 12 God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. It is interesting to note that this verse. <coughs> is the middle verse in the section of Genesis 1 through 11. In this section of scripture, this is the middle central verse. It's highly significant that although the earth had forgotten all about God, God was still looking upon the earth. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Everywhere God looked, he saw open, flagrant, public licentiousness and lawlessness. Vice and violence was the order of the day. Horrible sins were being flaunted and applauded. <clears throat> now again, the language here takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Instead of God seeing everything that he'd made and pronouncing it good... God now looks on everything that he's made and declares it's corrupt. Instead of the earth being filled with image bearers of God who multiply and fill the earth, now the earth is filled with violence. Corruption and violence are the two words that summarize here, but various other passages in the Bible provides us more and more details about the days of Noah. On the back of your outline sheet, you have a summary which has been prepared by Dr. Henry Morris. <clears throat> and these are other scriptures which tell us about the days of Noah. There was preoccupation with physical appetites, rapid advances in technology, grossly materialistic attitudes and interests, uniform, uniformitarian print, uh, philosophies, inordinate devotion to pleasure and comfort, no concern for God in either belief or conduct, Disregard for the sacredness of the marriage relation, rejection of the inspired word of God, population explosion, widespread violence, corruption throughout society, preoccupation with illicit sex activity, 
widespread words and thoughts of blasphemy, organized satanic activity, promulgation of systems and movements of abnormal depravity. These are the conditions that prevail in the days of Noah. And the same kinds of things are fast becoming accepted in our society. Old moral standards and religious restraints have been cast aside. Minority groups honour sexual perverts and the vilest forms of immorality. There's scarcely a ripple in society that objects to this anymore. The internet is awash with pornography. Bookstores line their shelves with obscene literature. The box office competes with each other to show the most degrading and disgusting programs. And the sins that produce the flood have risen again in our world, which, and these sins are fast approaching up to heaven. It's very significant that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, that as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. There's good reason, therefore, to believe that these present times are those which immediately precede the return of the Lord Jesus. Only if you're in Christ are we safe. In Genesis chapter 6, the corruption of everything, and the violence against each other, characterize the, the lives of the rapidly multiplying society in which God had created. And it was only a matter of time before they would self-destruct, so God determined to act. Notice from verse 13 and 17, what God determined to do. <clears throat> Verse 13. <clears throat> God said unto Noah. The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold I will destroy, destroy the earth with. Sorry. Destroy them with the earth. God said unto Noah. The end. Two words in English. It's one word in Hebrew. It comes from the root meaning to cut off. If you look back at verse 3, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God said, My spirit will not always strive with man. And God had been doing that. God had been doing that, but now God says the end has come. The limit has been reached. And although God had made a perfect world for man and had been marvelously long-suffering towards his creatures, there finally came a time when in justice to his own holiness, God had to terminate man's boundless wickedness. Verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under the heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. God decided to act in judgment. The remedy for worldwide wickedness was a worldwide flood. God announced what he would do. And yet, by and large, Except for Noah and his family, everyone failed to hear and respond. Modern man either doesn't believe that God exists or if they do believe he does exist, he's such a nice guy that he wouldn't be unkind enough to judge anyone or anything. But this wishful thinking needs to be corrected by a proper enunciation of who God really is and what God has already done in history.
So we see God's purpose for man. And we note that God is able to discern the thoughts and intents of man's heart. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15 verse 3. And we see that God holds man accountable, which is a sobering reality. Our sin is so grievous that all of us deserve to be buried under the flood of God's judgment. But then in this passage of scripture, we also see God's grief and his grace. It is incorrect for us to assume, as some do, that God is disinterested and not at all involved in human affairs. And it would be just as incorrect to assume that God is cold and callous and hard when it comes to the matter of judging his creation. In actual fact, God's deep distress at man's behaviour is recorded in Genesis in verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. Because evil filled the hearts of men, the heart of God was filled with grief. It is significant that the Hebrew word for grief or grieve there grieved him at his heart. The Hebrew word is actually related to the word sorrow that Adam and Eve experienced back in Genesis chapter 3 after their transgression. In sorrow bringing forth children. In sorrow, tilling the ground and laboring there. In other words, in a very real sense, God is not exempt from the pain and anguish which sin has introduced to his creation. Brethren, to understand God, it is imperative that due consideration be given not only to his righteous indignation against sin, but also that we need to give due consideration to the grief that he endures because of our sin and also to the grace that he is willing to extend towards sinners. The heart of God constantly overflows in loving kindness and tender mercies to all, but not all are interested in God's grace, not all are, in, are moved by God's divine favour, yet God delights in dispensing grace and discovering those who will warmly and willingly receive it. And in the midst of this abysmal, widespread moral and societal destruction in that day, there was one man, one such man, verse 8, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was willing to receive God's grace. And God ministered his grace to Noah in a number of ways. Firstly, in justifying Noah by faith. Verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation. The word just there is the Hebrew word sadek. It occurs about 200 times in the Old Testament and over 160 times it's translated as righteous. Noah was a righteous man. This is the first time the word Sadek 
righteous occurs in the Bible. But Noah's righteousness is mentioned in the Bible in numerous other places. Ezekiel talks about it. Book of Hebrews talks about it. Peter talks about it. Noah's righteousness didn't come from his good works. His good works came as a result of his righteousness. And like Abraham, Noah's righteousness was a gift from God. It wasn't something he produced himself. It was, a, it was something that God gave to him as a gift. Something God gave to him as a response of Noah's faith. Just like Abraham, Noah believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed God and because he believed God, God declared him righteous. The only righteousness that God will accept is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his son. And the only way people can receive that righteousness is by admitting their guilt and trusting in Jesus Christ as their saviour. In this case, the, the saviour who was to come, the prophesied one. And Noah must have learned this important truth from his father Lamech, who learned it from his father Methuselah, who learned it from his father Enoch. How important, brethren, is it that we teach our children and grandchildren how to trust the Lord? Notice verse 9. It says that Noah was perfect in his generation. The word perfect there means blameless. If righteous declares, uh, describes Noah's standing before God, then perfect or blameless describes his conduct before others. Blameless doesn't mean sinless because nobody but the Lord Jesus Christ lived a sinless life upon the earth. The word means having integrity. Whole, W-H-O-L-E. Unblemish. The same word is used to describe the animals that were an acceptable sacrifice to God. Unblemished. In other words, Noah's conduct was such that his neighbours couldn't find any fault with him. And this too, brethren, was a work of God's grace in Noah's life. Because the book of Titus tells us that it is the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. God's grace was extended to Noah in justifying him by faith. Secondly, in, in communing with Noah in his daily walk. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a man who walked with God while raising his children. The tendency for us is to do one or the other. Or one at the expense of the other. We let family responsibilities hinder our walk with the Lord or we concentrate so much on our walk with the Lord that we neglect our family. But Noah had the balance right. He walked with God and he taught his children to do the same. Indeed, he walked habitually with God, which is the force of the Hebrew text. Noah's great-grandfather Enoch had walked with God. And suddenly was taken to heaven to be rescued from the impending judgment of the flood. 
Noah walks with God and he is taken safely through the flood judgment. Enoch modelled a godly way of life for Methuselah. Methuselah must have passed that along, to, along to his son Lamech, who shared it with his son Noah. And how wonderful is it that generation after generation after generation in one family can be faithful to the Lord. Especially today, and especially in that day, in that time of history, when violence and corruption were just the normal way of life. The, the, the moral pressure that must have been put on Noah and his family must have been overwhelming. The temptations of licentiousness and a violent society, along with the continual rejection and ridicule of the masses. People, Peter says, were disobedient in the days of Noah. All of that must have been incredibly hard for Noah and his family to bear. Yet, God ministered enabling grace as Noah walked with God each day. By God's enabling grace, Noah and his family kept themselves unspotted from the world as they walked with God each day. You know, our life of fellowship with the Lord, our life of communion with the Lord is compared to a walk because it begins with one step. That is the step of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour. That's where it begins with that step. Have you taken that step? The step of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour. But then that one step of faith leads to another step of faith, another step of faith, a daily walk with the Lord. Step by step, one step at a time as the Lord directs us. The Lord commands us to walk in love. He commands us to walk as children of the light. He commands us to walk in the spirit. He commands us to walk circumspectly or to walk wisely. Step by step, a day at a time, we walk with the Lord and he guides us into his will. He blesses us with wisdom and strength. Clearly, God's grace was expressed to Noah in warning Noah of coming wrath. Because Noah walked with God, God had a wonderful relationship, fellowship and communion with Noah. Seven times it is recorded in the scriptures that God spoke to Noah. And each time was a time of blessed fellowship and it was a time of blessing for Noah and his family. Now the method by which God spoke to Noah is not disclosed, whether it was a vision or a dream or a direct theophany. Yet one way or another, God revealed to Noah what he was going to do, which confirms the truth. Of Psalm 25 verse 15 which says that the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show them his covenant. When you walk with the Lord he speaks to you through his word. He tells you what you need to know. He tells you what he wants you to do. And Jesus told us, that is he told us as his disciples that he doesn't treat us anymore like just like servants who are just merely doing his will. But he also considers us his friends with whom he shares his plans. John chapter 15. Henceforth I call you not servants. For a servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. I have called you friends. For all things that I have received of my Father I have made known unto you. Furthermore, not only does God 
fulfill us his plans. In his grace, he also is willing to include us in them. And that's another way that God showed his grace to Noah. In including Noah in his saving work. God took Noah into his confidence. Explaining his deep distress at the human condition. Outlining his proposed judgment and then instructing him. In the part that he was to play in the furthering of this divine plan. Verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And in the verses that follow, we have detailed instructions concerning the size and the structure, as well as specific details about the passenger list and the food and the cargo. But the New Testament also provides us with some more insight here. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The idea was God's responsibility to expedite. That was Noah. The incentive behind the initiative was, was God. But the willing obedience to be part of that was Noah. Grace flowed from the heart of God and faith appropriated it in the heart of Noah. And the eternal purposes of God went onward to their relentless conclusion and Noah had the privilege of being part of it. That's grace. Noah wasn't a minor character in God's story of redemption. He's mentioned some 50 times in nine different books of the Bible. That's grace. The word for ark, the Hebrew word for ark, is not the same word used in the ark of the covenant, but it is the same word used of the ark of bulrushes in which Moses was hidden as a baby. So it seems therefore to be a very ancient word for a box that is intended to float upon water. And according to God's instructions, the ark was designed for capacity and for floating stability rather than for speed or ease of navigation. The dimensions are given here, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. And if a cubit be a standard 18 inches, then the vessel's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Three decks, one door, series of windows, 18 inches high right under the roof, presumably all the way around, providing light and ventilation. The three decks were divided into three compartments where various animals would be kept and where Noah and his family could live. It's a huge wooden box that could float on the water and keep the contents safe and dry. Dr. Henry Morris has calculated that the, the ark was large enough to hold the contents of over 500 
livestock railway cars, providing space for about 150,000 animals, sorry, about 125,000 animals. Now, of course, many of the animals on the ark would have been small in size, wouldn't need a lot of space. And even when it comes to the larger animals, Noah could no doubt have gotten younger ones and smaller representatives. Plenty of room in the vessel for food, for all the animals and for the people. Now, to the majority of modern intellectuals, Noah is merely a legendary character and the ark full of animals is merely a story for children's colouring books. They seem to think that the entire account of this sobering and important history is too naive even to consider and to be serious. And yet, the later writers of the Bible did not have the same view. Isaiah certainly took Noah and his ark seriously. Isaiah 59, 54 verse 9, the Lord speaking through Isaiah says, For this is the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah shall no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. Ezekiel mentions Noah twice as one of three men, the three most righteous men in history. The writer of Chronicles records Noah in the genealogy of Chronicles chapter, 1 Chronicles 1. And in the New Testament, Luke includes Noah in the official genealogy of Christ. Furthermore, the Apostle Peter mentions Noah two times, both obviously regarding him as a very strategic figure in history. And perhaps most importantly, Jesus Christ himself accepted the story of Noah and of the ark as a real event. Hebrews chapter 11 records Noah as one of the greatest men of faith in history. And in each of the New Testament references where Noah is mentioned, so too is his ark. Building the ark required careful planning and engineering. A century plus of sweat. But verse 22 tells us, thus did Noah. According to all that God commanded him, so did he. When Noah finished laying the incredible 450, long, 450 foot long keel out there on the ground and then begin to put the ribs on the side of it, presumably he did it that way. Imagine the abuse and the ridicule that would have come his way. How many Noah jokes would people come up with over a century Imagine the torts that came Noah's way. How many sons of Noah does it take to drive in a spike? But Noah remained obedient, doing exactly what God said. 25 years, 50 years, 75 years, 100 years. Doing what God called him to do. God not only wanted the humans to be preserved, but also every kind of creature that would otherwise be wiped out by the flood. Question, how's Noah going to be able to gather all these animals together? Birds and animals and creeping things? Well, the answer is that God would cause these creatures to come to Noah. Verse 20 tells us that. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 15 tell us that. God brought the creatures to Adam 
and then Adam would sorry Noah would take them into the ark the animals that went in included not only pairs of unclean animals uh, who would be able to reproduce after the flood but also seven pairs of clean animals some of whom would be used for sacrifices and so Noah and his family are not only just learning about the faithfulness of God they're also learning about the sovereignty of God they can even arrange for animals to be brought most people who know the name Noah understand that supposedly he built an ark what they don't know also is that Noah built a godly character and a godly family by the grace of God and had it not been the grace of God working in Noah and his family then Abraham wouldn't have been born without Abraham there wouldn't be a Jewish nation without a Jewish nation we wouldn't have a Bible we wouldn't have a saviour So as the minor prophet tells us, in wrath, God remembers mercy. But also in grief, in God's grief over sin, he also pours forth his grace. Thirdly, we see God's patience and promise. Presumably, the God who made the universe could have thought of other ways of judging sinful men and preserving godly people without requiring the aid of Noah and without requiring the laborious task of building an ark which took 120 years. But throughout history, God has shown himself willing and eager to enroll men in cooperative ventures with himself. This speaks not only again of the grace of God in allowing us to be his co-workers, but also pinpoints and highlights his remarkable patience. Peter speaks of the long-suffering of God as he waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared. But he also points out that, Peter also points out that during that period of 120 years when the ark was being prepared, patiently prepared, 120 years is given man, throughout all this time as the ark was preparing, Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. No doubt Noah had uh, plenty of curious neighbours who gathered around the ark, wanted to know what on earth he's doing making this three-storey building box. Noah was ready with an answer to inquiries. He preached righteousness to them. Now, Genesis doesn't tell us any more than that. Well, any, doesn't, Genesis doesn't tell us anything that Noah said. The only thing we know is what Peter tells us. He preached righteousness. But in the absence of inspired content about that, later Jewish imagination fills in the blanks. <clears throat> the Sibline oracles imagined these impassioned words from Noah, quote, <clears throat> Faithless men, maddened by passion, do not forget the great things God has done. For the immortal, all-provident Saviour knows all things, and he's commanded me to be a messenger to you, lest you be destroyed with your madness. Sober yourselves. Cease from your evil practices and from murderous violence against each other, soaking the earth with human blood. Reverence, my fellow mortals, the supreme and unassailable creator in heaven, the imperishable God who dwells on high. Call upon him, all of you, for he is good and merciful to you all. 
for this vast world of men will be destroyed with water and you will and you will utter cries of terror sudden and suddenly the elements will turn against you as the wrath of almighty god will come upon you from heaven perhaps he preached like that <clears throat> but god was very very patient gave 120 years Noah preaching 120 years yet sadly repentance did not come and eventually the judgment fell <clears throat> in his sovereign power God brought all the animals to Noah and his sons God controlled them they did his bidding this magnificent demonstration of God's power sadly that even that didn't touch the hearts of his neighbors they all perished in the flood the birds and the beasts and the creeping things knew their creator's voice they obeyed him but the people who were made in the image and likeness of God refused to heed God's call centuries later God would say through his servant Isaiah the ox knoweth his owner the ass his master's crib but Israel doth not know my people do not consider during all of this important activity now was serving the Lord bearing witness to a sinful world and for 120 years God was long suffering towards careless and rebellious sinners but they ignored his message they lost the opportunity for salvation and so today people refuse God's call and lose the opportunity for salvation God warns before he judges he delays his promised wrath he longs for people to come to repentance but his patience should never be abused it should be cherished along with his promises finally we see God's promise in verse 18 but with thee will I establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy wives with thee thy sons wives with thee this is the first time the, the Bible mentions the word covenant it does appear often in scripture because this covenant concept is an important part of God's dealings with men the program of re redemption now God is going to explain a little bit more about this covenant he makes with Noah and his family after they leave the ark in chapter 8 and chapter 9 we'll look at it then but in brief a covenant is an agreement that involves obligations and benefits for the parties involved in some of the covenants that God makes with man God God alone is the covenant party he makes unconditional promises to people whatever you do doesn't matter I'm going to do my part it's unconditional but there were also other covenants that required the people the other party to fulfill certain conditions before God would bless them and the words of Genesis 6 13 to 21 addressed specifically to Noah but also Noah's family were included in that covenant verse 18 now the fact that God had covenanted to care for Noah and his family that gave them peace and confidence as they were preparing the ark all these years and as they entered into the ark itself and they're quite terrified I imagine for a year God is faithful to keep his promises 
And as God's covenant people, the eight believers there had nothing to fear. The promises of God sustain his people. That's true for us. And our advantage is so much greater than Noah and his family because we have the whole Bible full of promises that God makes to us. The scripture is full of promises that God makes to us. And even more so, all God's promises to us are yes in Christ, Paul says in Corinthians. Every promise that God makes to us is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Yes, I will do it. Yes, I will do it. Yes, I will do it. How much greater should be our faithfulness to God, our trust in the Lord. God wants us to know him. His self-revelation comes in different ways. He shows himself to us through creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the God of creation can sometimes be awe-inspiring and quite scary. The frowning countenance, the thunder clouds, an overwhelming flood, these sorts of things in creation don't make for warm, intimate relations, God and man relationships. But God also reveals himself, not just through creation, he reveals himself through covenants, and promises that he makes to us. And in his covenants, God shows himself ready to meet with people. To enter into a promised relationship with people. He outlines our duties, our expectation, what he expects from us, what we can expect from him in return. These are the things which make for warm and wholesome relationships. And once this idea of covenant is introduced in the scripture, the theme Carries all the way through, right through the new covenant, which is sealed in the blood of Christ. And this is the main means whereby we are brought into such an intimate relationship with God that we're reconciled to him forever. There are a few things more encouraging to me than to know that the God of creation is also the God who makes covenants. When I look at the heavens, I am struck with the immensity of it all, the grandeur of God. And like Psalm 8, you're thinking, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And how can you so, so far above us even think about people as small as us? But then immediately I'm reminded of what God does. In that this God who is so transcendent over all things, he's also imminent. He draws near to us. He speaks to us as he, as, as he spoke to Noah. He's promised that he will act on our behalf. We can safely trust in him. And knowing this, knowing this, helps us to know God more intimately. Brethren, here we have a glimpse of what it means to walk with God. To walk with God is not a stroll. It means to go the same way with God in obedience, even when the whole culture is marching the other way. Yet the God that we can walk with desires to be known. He reveals himself to us in the words that he speaks to us, in the promise that he makes to us as we have fellowship with him. 
Brethren, let us not just be accumulating more information about God. Let us walk with the Lord each day. And as we walk in the light, if we walk in fellowship with the law, let us grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Daniel 11.32 says that the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you have drawn near to us in Christ. Thank you that you draw near to us in the gospel. Thank you that you sent your son to be the saviour of the world. We could never reach unto you. Thank you, Lord, that you've come down to us. Thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself in the scriptures, in creation, but most fully in your son. Thank you for the great love that you have for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you that uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, his shed blood upon the cross, our sins can be forgiven. His righteousness given to us as a free gift for those who believe. And thank you that we uh, can be reconciled to you, brought into close personal relationship with you. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you'd help us to walk with you. Pray that someone here might even take that first step today, trusting Jesus Christ as their saviour. And then for the rest of us, Lord, help us to walk with you each day, walking in the light, walking in the spirit, walking circumspectly. Lord, help us to walk with you. And as we walk with you, we pray that uh, you might be pleased to use us by your grace and for your glory. That you might include us uh, in the wonderful things that you are doing in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.